Turn with me to Revelation chapter 18 this morning. Revelation 18, we'll be looking at the first three verses. Revelation 18, verse 1. And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lighted with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word and the, and the freedom we have to be able to look at this word and to preach it. I ask this morning that you be with me as I attempt to share this message with my brothers and sisters here. And I pray that they'd be challenged in their hearts to follow you more, to glorify you more, to honour you more in their lives in their hearts and their thoughts. Lord, we ask that Jesus' name be lifted up this morning in the sermon. And I pray that you'd be with me and hide me behind your cross. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Who knows what that is? Money? Sorry? Blessing. Plastic. Yeah, it's a piece of plastic. Yeah, it's, it's a piece of plastic as well. Why do they make it plastic in the first place? Do they make it plastic so you can, you can wash it in your, pe- in your trousers and it'll still come out alright? It'll last a bit longer. That's money. Okay. What do we do with money? It's there for a reason. If there was no money, what would we do? <laughs> you'd barter. You'd be swapping things. The purpose of money is to be able to buy things and to accumulate uh, assets and to, uh, and to exchange it for goods. You need it to live, you need it to, uh, to buy food and clothes and, and housing and everything else that goes on with life. Question. That's a $10 bill, right? How do you know it's a $10 bill? Because there's a number that says 10 on the right, Eddie? Yes. <laughs> That's the answer I wanted. Well, how do you know it's a real $10 bill? How, how do you know that this isn't a, a counterfeit? Are any of us trained here to be able to to find the fake from the uh, from the real? Has anyone got a good enough eye? Because I printed this up, and I'm only joking. I didn't print it up last night. But it's there. Is there any counterfeit money in the Australian system at the moment? I would say there is, right? So there there are people who are smart enough to be able to um, to duplicate that, to copy it, and to copy it well enough to con the average person. Correct. All right. Now, how do they normally train people who, who are involved in sniffing out this sort of stuff? How do they train them to be able to, to, uh, to detect whether it's a fraud or whether it's real? They have genuine money. They have genuine money. See, he's, he's heard this one before. They have genuine money, right, that they study and they handle and they feel and they touch and they work with and... They know the real one. If you had to study the fake ones, 
they'd be different all the time, wouldn't they? So you study the real one properly in order to be able to discern. When the fake one comes along, you can tell there's something wrong with it. Okay? We're going to be talking about money today, in a sense. We're going to be talking about what it has to do with us and, and, uh, and the world. A question for another question for you. What would happen if the majority of money in the system was counterfeit? You wouldn't trust it, would you? So what would that mean to your life? If the money you had in your pocket, you couldn't trust. Because if you brought it to the bank, they might say, sorry, that's not real, that's not real, that's not real, that's not real. You couldn't trust being able to use it. It would break down the whole system, wouldn't it? Because if there was more counterfeits than real going around, then the whole system breaks down. And we're going to be looking at that very thing at the moment in, in this, this morning's message. You see, I've had the privilege of being able to, to um, complete... I don't know you because I handed in my test just a few days ago. But anyway, let's say, let's say we completed it. Um, uh, doctrine, Bible doctrine, or theology. And, and part of that is, is, one thing I love about it is, uh, the, the questions that come to you is, what do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about God? What do you believe about uh, salvation? And there are a lot of different ideas about those things, aren't there? I mean, some people believe that God is one way, we believe in God as a trinity, for instance. There are other people who believe salvation is by works. We believe it is by grace through faith. But why do we believe those things? Why do we say we believe in, in Jesus being the Son of God who was made human and made flesh and that he's not an angel like the Jehovah's Witnesses believe? Why do we say we believe them? We believe these things that we preach on every Sunday that we, that we share with the people around us, that we have as a foundation for our lives, we say we believe it because it's in here. Because if it's not in here, you can, you can forget about laying a foundation for your life and being confident with, uh, with relying on that thing because it could very well be a counterfeit. And the only way as we've already discussed, to be able to discern the true from the light is to compare it to the real. The one that hasn't changed from the beginning. You see, if you had the original note that was made, I'll give you another illustration. In France, and I think I might have shared this with you a while ago, in France there's a piece of metal and it's made of uh, rubidium or some, some other type of interesting type of alloy and it's exactly one metre long. And it's kept in France, in the, uh, in the Institute of uh, Weights and Measurements, and it's the standard, guess what, for the whole world as to what is an exact metre. So when people make rulers and things and all that sort of stuff, guess what their standard is? It's that piece of metal that is sitting in France, in Paris, and they have to compare it to that, because if they're off from that, then they're off from the standard. So if someone prints a, or, or makes a ruler or some sort of device, measuring device and it's not the same as that, it's really a counterfeit. It's not the real thing. It can't be trusted. And so when we're talking about this morning, we'll be talking about finding the true from the lie. The problem with uh, religion this morning 
And the problem with religion in this world is that there are more counterfeits than there are more counterfeits than true. So the only way we can measure, the only way we can find out which is the real is to compare it to the standard. Because we don't have enough, like money. You can, ha- you can handle hundreds and hundreds of notes. We don't have that at our disposal here. With the Christian, it has to be a standard that he measures things by. This morning we're talking about these verses mentioned Babylon the Great. And the fact that Babylon the Great, at this particular point in time, which is at, towards the end of the tribulation period, it's spoken of as being fallen, fallen. God has passed judgment on it. And Babylon the Great, we've spoken already, represents false religion. And false Christianity is mixed up in there as well. And unfortunately, false Christianity is the most deceptive of all religions because it seeks to be closest to what's real. And this false religion has led people astray from the beginning. And it's been supported by politics and men in power because it's worth it for them to do it. As I've seen, the most dangerous of philosophies and religions are those which look and feel like the truth with a slight deviation from it. You see, when they print up a counterfeit note, they don't make it very different, do they? The goal is to print it up as closely as possible so it passes as the real thing. And that's exactly what Satan does with the religions of this world. The reason there are so many counterfeit Christian faiths in this world is that Satan knows the more variations he can have which align themselves closely enough to the truth, the more people will be deceived by that very thing. If we look at the world around us and Christendom in particular, there is an overabundance of variations of the same theme. All say they have the truth. All promise that they've got the right way to God. And for the average person, there's a veritable minefield they have to go through to actually get to the truth. And most don't make it. Satan has orchestrated a masterful plan of deception which has kept mankind in bondage from the beginning. Even God's chosen people, the Jews, through whom God's word was brought to this world, because he used them to write it down, even they, with the standard with them, were fooled time and time again into following false religion. Isaiah 1, chapter 1, verse 21 says, How is the faithful city become a harlot? It was full of judgment, righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. False religion has sought to entice God's people away from him and his truth and has used whatever means to achieve her purposes. She has used governments throughout the ages who have cavorted with her in some sort of mutual benefit, feeding off each other, each using the other for their own gain. And so we find, and this is a bit of a, a background to, to this passage here because it's been a few weeks since we've, uh, we've talked about this subject, we find this woman, this Babylon the Great, the, 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 it's called the mother of harlots, and, and this, this whole system of false religions riding on the backs of world governments. And by, by that, she has made herself very rich. 
Let me ask you a question. Who's the richest man in the world? You'd say Bill, probably, wouldn't you? Yeah, Bill's probably the richest man in the world. Now, let me ask you another question. If you added the wealth of all the Christian religions and false religions that are out there, would Bill Gates come even close? Not a hope. If you added all the wealth of all the churches and, and um, uh, uh, false religions and everything else that's out there, added, add up their wealth and all the people they have tracked in those systems giving, 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 Bill Gates would not even come close to the wealth that is out there. False religion, and especially false Christianity, is so incredibly rich that nothing comes close. This woman has ridden the governments of successive ages. If you go to Revelation, go back a chapter, chapter 17, verse 2 to 4. We'll read. Still giving you a recap. Revelation 17.2 says, With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-coloured beast full of the names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet colour, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Now we spoke last time about these seven heads and ten horns, and they were symbolic of seven mountains and, the, and these ten kings that would finally align themselves with the Antichrist. And these seven mountains represented seven kings or kingdoms, and they were successive one after the other. And five of these, John the Apostle says, have fallen. They've been and they've gone. And one was in his day. And the seventh was yet to come after John. And then after the seventh, which would only last a very short time, there'd be an eight. And the eight would be epitomised by the Antichrist. What I shared with you last time was that these seven heads were not necessarily men or kings, earthly kings, but demonic kings. These were fallen angels who were in charge of, you might say, these particular dominions. And I gave you a number of reasons for that. We discovered in scripture that Satan's demons have been meddling in the world's kingdoms in the past. We saw that scripture declares that there have been a progression of these angels whose dominion over earthly kingdoms, regardless of how many earthly kings there were, existed. And we saw an example of that in Daniel, where the angel Gabriel came to give Daniel a message and it took him 21 days fighting the prince of Persia just to get to where he needed to get to. And Michael, the archangel, had to come and help. We noted in scripture that it calls these fallen angels kings directly. And we also saw that before the Roman Empire, which was in John's day, when John wrote this particular letter, we saw that five had already come and gone. Five major world powers had come and gone. Greece before him, before Rome. Then Persia, Babylon, Assyria and Egypt. 
And according to Scripture, the seventh was yet to come. And this will occur at the beginning of the tribulation period. But the rule will only be short because when the eighth comes, it will be the very last. And it will be epitomized by the one the Bible calls the Antichrist. Turn back to Revelation chapter 18 verse 1 and so we'll read those two verses again just to refresh our, our minds. And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lighted with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Babylon is fallen. God sends a mighty angel down from heaven to declare that Babylon had fallen, had been defeated, and become the, the habitation of demons or devils. And it mentions that thing in three different ways. It says it became the habitation of devils, the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. That's three different ways of saying the same sort of thing. But notice something interesting there. It says it was a cage of those birds. The Holy Spirit expresses that thing to us in three different ways. You see, the demons that controlled and worked through this false religion were now caged within it. There was nowhere left for them to go. Do you remember that the abyss was opened up at one stage and all of those foul uh, spirits came up out of there, but they were confined to the earth. There was a war in heaven. Satan and his angels were cast down to the earth for the impending judgment upon them. And they were now trapped. It was, it was all over for them. There was no escape at this point. The interesting one is the last one to me, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Bird? What's birds got to do with anything? Turn to Matthew chapter 13, verse 31, as we look at an illustration which may shed a little bit of light on the whole thing. Matthew chapter 13, verse 31. And the parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Okay. The kingdom of heaven is planted like a small seed in obscurity. It's planted in the ground and you can't even see that it's actually there. When God's word touches people's lives, their lives are changed, are they not? And as a result, their lives touch other lives and God's word gets multiplied and that faith gets multiplied. And after a while, that, that, that thing grows and becomes a tree. It becomes noticeable in the landscape, doesn't it? It becomes something that you can see. Whereas before it was obscured, 
it then becomes something that's visible. It's there. That's exactly what happened with the Christian church. It started in obscurity and quickly grew to become a tree. And all of a sudden, people are noticing, hang on, what's, what's going on here? This, this religion that's come up here, that's it's really affecting a lot of people. And a lot of people, um, especially the leaders, the Jewish leaders and then the Roman leaders, uh, uh, had a bit of fear about it. So it becomes something that's noticeable. But all of a sudden, it says the birds lodge there. Birds. Now, that's a, that's a nice little thing, isn't it? You know, a tree grows and the birds... You know, find a little place to make their nests, and they can feed off it, and they can, and they can, you know, have a little place to shelter under the rain. But for one point, birds are normally bad things symbolically in the Bible. They're not good. And these birds are a picture of false leaders that operate in a false church. The fact that they lodge in the branches shows us that false teachers, once, the, once the, the church establishes itself, false teachers come into the church and apostate leaders infiltrate the church, make their home there and they feed off it. In the same way, Paul warned of false teachers infiltrating the church, the very young church in his day. And guess what? The church is a nice way to make money, if you haven't noticed it. You can make good money if you set it up right. Turn to Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Listen to these words carefully. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. There is a warning there, very explicit warning, that when, when Paul and Peter and, and the apostles were gone off the scene, that other men would try to come in and draw those people away with them. They'd try and draw people or disciples away with them because it was in their interest to do it. And that's the similar thing to what the, uh, the parable of the, uh, the, the birds were. And now we're going back during the tribulation period or towards the end Babylon, this false religion God finally judges and he uses the governments that were supporting it to actually kill it off it's judged and the demons have nowhere to go they are trapped as well waiting for that, their final judgment as well Go to verse 3 of Revelation 18. It says, For all nations have drunk of the wine of, of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundances, abundance of her delicacies. 
Now in verse 3 we see the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her that she has seduced them into cooperating with her to gain wealth and power. And not only them, it says, but the merchants of the earth, the business people, the people who make money, have become rich through her. What this is saying is that they became rich through false religion. Not just personal desire or greed, that, that is normally inherent in everyone. This is through a philosophy of life that they're using, which is another way of saying a false religion, and it permeates all of mankind's thinking. First, we are told that all the nations are involved here. This is worldwide. There is not one nation that has escaped this particular falseness. Every nation has turned away from God for the almighty dollar and the luxuries that it can buy, peace and affluence that it gives. The picture is a world that's drunk with Babylon's evil influence, her spiritual, moral, political and national stupor. The world is already drunk and getting more so every day on materialism and the commercial mania of our days. And the tribulation will be the culmination of this particular type of thinking. As this bitterness grips the hearts of men and kings, Babylon will promote this philosophy that happiness, significance, security and fulfilment are obtained or attained by the abundance that people possess. In travel, in luxury, in comfort, in pleasure... Does that sound bad to you? The devil is using the things of this world to trap the people of this world. And the con is that true happiness comes from these things rather than a relationship with God. The evil that's perpetrated here is an independent and arrogant spirit that seeks happiness and security away from God. It's not because things in life are wrong or evil. It's not that. But it's because they're allowed to take God's place in a person's heart. The spirit of commercialism in this world begets universal covetousness, which is a form of idolatry and is in contrast to biblical principles. Money and power through riches become more important than the pursuit of God. And this is a common belief that pervades the thoughts of mankind everywhere. Since money and wealth have been exchanged for each other, it's that money brings freedom, that wealth brings freedom. Freedom from the constraints of the world, freedom to be happy, freedom to live as I please, freedom to have power over others, freedom to influence other people, freedom to be happy and find fulfilment in everything. Ever heard this phrase, if I only had more money? Ever said it? Ever thought it? Yeah, I have. 
as if, as if having more money was the answer to my problems. But Jesus said, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. True freedom does not come from the mass of wealth and money that one possesses. It comes from having a right relationship with Jesus Christ. It's about having a relationship with a God that loves you enough to send his only son to come and die on a cross for you. That's where real happiness comes from. That's where real security comes from. But the devil will do everything he possibly can to distract us from that one truth. And he'll use every possible means, whether it's politics, false religion, and everything around us that we see, the lure and temptation that we can find happiness in our assets. That's why the Bible often warns about chasing after riches, because it ends in vanity. Turn to 1 Timothy Chapter 6, verse 5. 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verse 5. Paul gives a warning to the church. Perverse disputing of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. That gain is monetary gain, is godliness. From such, withdraw thyself. In other words, don't have anything to do with them. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. Ever wonder where that phrase came from? You brought nothing in this world, you won't take anything out? It comes from the Bible, along with a whole lot of other proverbs that we... That we, we uh, take for granted in our lives. Verse 8 says, And having food and raiment, let us therewith, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows, but thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience and meekness. There's a warning here that if you desire to be rich and that is what's in your heart and that's the thing that you're chasing after, you are setting yourself up for a world of hurt. Notice it says that they that will be rich in other words, you want to be rich. You may not be rich, but that still may be the desire of your heart. You may be poor, but if that's the desire of your heart, that's the God that you are following. It's those who want to be rich, who will put things aside, who will sacrifice things in their life for that dollar, which is the thing that will trap them in the end, which will plunge them into many hurtful things. What is it that the average executive will sacrifice to climb the corporate ladder? Will it be his family, his integrity, his honesty, all the hours in the day 
Will it be God? I'll tell you the first needle sacrifice is God. The first one that will go is God. You cannot be running and having your ambitions to run after money and riches and say you follow God at the same time. Your mind, Jesus says, can't serve two masters. You cannot serve both. You will eventually have to hate one and that one will always be God. Why? It's because, let's say I'm chasing after money. Let's say money is a thing that I really want and I believe that that will give me peace and security and success and will give me a nice home and everything else that goes along with it. You know, it'll make me look good in front of everyone else. And then I say, I'm following God. Well, you can't, first of all, you can't follow both. And the second thing is, even if you are chasing money and you say, oh, I've got God here, he's going to slow you down, isn't he? Because God is going to demand your attention. God demands your time, your effort, your devotion. Eventually, you have to see and hate God for stopping you from achieving your real desire, which is success in this world. You'll see God more like a ball and chain than as your provider, wouldn't you? And what you do say when you seek after riches and glory and fame and everything that goes along with it, what you're saying is that that's where I believe I will find my peace, my happiness, my security. That's what you're actually saying. That's what you believe in in your heart. Instead, the Bible says that we find our peace, our security, our love and everything that we need in God. That's why John the Apostle says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You cannot love both. Either you love God with all your... What is it? Heart, mind, soul and strength. You cannot do that and love money at the same time. You cannot. You cannot love two opposite things at the same time. You cannot love holiness and love sin. You will, if you love sin, you will hate holiness because the two are not compatible with each other. Choices have to be made. Decisions. You cannot love God and the world at the same time. One will become hateful to you and that one will always be God That's why the battlefield of this thing is in our minds here. We talked about that the other night at our, uh, our get-together. The battlefield is in our minds because the Bible says the way you think is who you actually are. The way I think is who I am, not what I do. And you know why it's not necessarily what you do? Because what you do could be an act in front of everyone else. And you may even be fooling yourself. See, some people say when, we, when you ask the average person, are you a good person? Do you think you'll go to heaven? The average person will say, yeah, I'm good enough to go to heaven. 
and then you start asking him a few questions about, you know, have you, have you, um, have you ever killed anyone? And, no, I've never killed anyone. Uh, committed adultery? No, 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 I'm faithful. Done this or done that? No, no. And then you start getting down to the, to the finer ones. You ever coveted? And inevitably what people do is they, because they know that they've been caught out, what people do, and this is our nature, okay, is all the big important ones that we say that are really important for us to get to heaven, we hold those up, don't we? And we say, that's what I haven't done. But then the other ones that aren't really as important, we say, oh, no, that's not, I'm not going to worry too much about that one there. Look, I've done, I've, done, I've done these big ones, but the small ones... But Jesus says it's the small ones. Jesus says he who is faithful in the least is faithful in much. This world's got everything upside down. People think they can, they can take care of the big things and not worry about any of the smaller ones. That's not true. Because Jesus says it's the small things that make the difference. People think that if I act on the outside and follow all the main rules and regulations that are there, that I'm good enough. You know something? That's a lie. Because the only reason you're following all the big ones is because you're scared you're going to get caught. And when you're going to get caught, you're going to suffer the consequences. But all the ones that you don't worry about too much because you're not going to get caught and you're not going to suffer any consequences, you do. Isn't that true? That we often excuse the smaller things in our lives because, oh, it's not going to make a difference. No one's going to notice it. But hey, you know something? There is one that notices everything. The world will tell you that your peace and happiness comes from acquiring this world's goods and having your security there. How you think in your mind, though, will eventually reflect in the way you live. If you chase after riches, you're saying that it's the way you're thinking. The world will tell you that you'll find your meaning in life by running in this thing called the human race. The human race. We're all part of it, aren't we? Okay. Question is, what are we racing for? Where is this race going to end? And where? I submit to you that the race that this world is running will end in judgment and has a finishing line in a thing called the lake of fire. It's a race that's run at a frenetic pace every day, day after day, with the taskmaster whipping anyone who doesn't keep up the pace. A race running through a gate that's very, very wide, because everyone's running it, and a road that's just as wide... And it's running in a particular direction. It's running away from someone who's standing there with open arms, with nail scars in his hands, who is a little gate. And the Bible says that there's only going to be a few who go through that small gate and find their way to life. The rest of this world is running in a direction that the devil wants them to run. <coughs> And it will only end with destruction. All the while running away 
from the God that loves them. That's why Paul says, But thou, O man of God, flee these things. Run in the opposite direction to the way the world's running. Run opposite. And follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience and meekness. Start running in the other way, in the opposite direction. That is a beautiful description of what repentance is. When you've been running your whole life away from God, chasing after your own dreams and money and everything that goes along with it, and living your life of sin, all of a sudden you realise, hang on a sec, this is not the right way to be going, even though everyone's going that way, and you repent and you turn around and you start running the other way. And guess what? You're going to butt heads with a few people on the way, aren't you? Because you're running in the opposite direction. And how do you know you'll stay on the right path? There's only one way. If you have the instruction book with you that tells you which way to go. Too many have forsaken this particular book which tells them that's the path to take and eventually they, they go in circles and they find themselves back on that path that goes the wrong way. While the world is busy chasing pig slops and dung hills of life, the Prince of Peace calls to this world offering his love and his peace. A small gate is opened to go through. The question is, have we gone through it? And are we staying on that course? His is the greatest wealth that you can ever have. He is the greatest security that you can ever possess. He is the greatest love you will ever know. You cannot find love in this world that comes anywhere close to the love that you will find in Jesus Christ for you. But the world we find here has run away from that. It runs the opposite way. It runs according to Satan's lies and empty promises. And billions throughout history history have been fooled into changing the truth of God into a lie. And as Romans says, to worship and serve the creature more than the creator. And the church is in peril today as well. The church is in peril. It faces its greatest challenge today. Because the same lie that has hijacked the church in the past, has infiltrated the truth with, with lies, has turned loose these ravenous wolves among the flock has been repackaged in our days. Repackaged to look beautiful, to look like a wonderful present that's been, that's been given to us to help us along our way as churches. It looks glittering, it looks nice, but the gift inside is not very nice. We've been handed such, such goodies in the, in, in the recent past as prosperity gospels, New evangelicalism, the seeker-sensitive movement, the purpose-driven church, the church growth program, the social gospel, the liberal theology, the charismatic movement with signs and wonders, and the list goes on and on and on and on. All these presents that are given to the church that are wrapped up in beautiful glossy uh, uh, coverings contain death, contain only deviations from the truth. Where are you running today? My question will be. I'm going to close up with that. What fills your heart this morning? What fills your heart? What is it that's spoken most from your mouth? I'm just giving you some ideas just to find out what's actually in there. 
Because oftentimes we fool ourselves into thinking that, oh, everything's fine with me. But then if you take an account of your life, an honest account, we realise we're not exactly where we're meant to be. What is the thing that you speak about the most? What is it that you're most passionate about? What stirs up your soul when you speak about it the most? What gets you excited? Passionate. Where does your heart truly lie today? If you say, Jesus, are you simply saying it because you know that's the right answer? You know that's the right answer. I'm the most excited about Jesus. I talk about Jesus the most. I, uh, I, uh, my life is spent around, revolving around him. And you know that's the right answer. The question is, is it? Is God the one that you are really chasing after? I'll share something with you. If you don't get excited when you hear God's word, there may be a problem. If you have no desire to talk to God on a regular basis, there may be a problem. If you spend your time seeking all forms of enjoyment but find no satisfaction spending it with Christ, there may be a problem. There may be something terribly wrong. Does anyone disagree with me that our first love should be Jesus Christ? Does anyone disagree with that statement? No. Then if that's true, then does the way we think every day betray that? Is my focus, my time, my passions showing me that I'm actually not believing that at all? That I believe something very different? Please fill in the rest of this line for yourself. If there is something, sorry, if I really loved Jesus, if I really loved Jesus more than everything else in this world, then I would. Why? If I really love Jesus more than everything else in this world, then I will. Why? What is it that's coming to mind? Because there may be something you need to do. I'm going to close with a passage of scripture. Revelation chapter 3 verse 14. You can turn with me there as well. Because Jesus knows the heart of this generation. In Revelation chapter 3 verse 14, Jesus speaks to the church of the later scenes. And unto the angel of the church of the later scenes write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou were cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increase with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. 
as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. Is Jesus in your heart today? If he's not, why don't you let him in? If you've shut him out, he will not force his way back in. As Alan said, he is, he is an absolute gentleman. He will not force his way into your heart again. But it's up to us to be zealous, to repent, and to open that door and let him in. This is speaking to a church, not to unsaved. My desire for us is that we are zealous. I've already prayed this morning that the Lord would increase our faith. Yes, the Lord would increase our faith. That we would grow stronger each day. We can't increase our faith if we don't put God first. The greatest commandments that shall love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul and strength are we doing that today? God bless you.